0: a crime most queer is an lgbtq true crime podcast based in johannesburg south africa intended for adult audiences and may contain graphic or disturbing content including detailed descriptions of violence physical or sexual assault injuries to victims and foul language if you feel this may trigger you at all please reconsider listening if you need to talk to someone please see our show notes for the contact numbers of crisis helplines around south africa
1: Welcome to A Crime Most Clear. I'm N.J. Hawkeby. So, in this special episode, we're taking a break from our current series on Gay Panic in South Africa to bring you a follow-up to a previous series. From mid-November to mid-December 2020, we released a five-part series where we explored the brutal torture of ten men in a house in Seapoint, Cape Town, in 2003, following which Nine of them would succumb to their injuries. This would come to be known as the Sizzlers Massacre. Adam Roy Voost and Trevor Basil Tace would eventually be found guilty in 2004 and were each sentenced to nine life sentences for the murders 20 years for the attempted murder of the sole survivor, Quentin Taylor, 15 years for robbery, 3 years for the unlawful possession of a firearm, and 2 years for the unlawful possession of ammunition. Trevor received an additional five years for the theft of his brother's firearm. According to South African law, whenever a life sentence is imposed, any additional sentences, even if there are other life sentences, are served concurrently. In other words, they are served at the same time. Basically, a criminal, no matter how heinous, will only serve a maximum of 25 years, or roughly one-third of their life in prison. Trevor Tace never made it that far. He died of a heart attack in 2009. Adam Wurst, on the other hand, is still behind bars, having served just 17 years of his 25-year sentence. However, family of the victims were recently notified that he has been considered for early parole due to, among other things, good behavior. Like, seriously, good behavior. I'm trying really hard not to swear in this episode, but seriously, good behaviour. Anyway, before we dive into this, I need to correct a few things that I got wrong in my telling of the story of the Citizens' Massacre. Firstly, I said that Warren Fisser, whom I referred to by his second name, Robert, had a strained relationship with his mother, and that they had had an argument on the phone a few hours before he died. While their relationship was strained, there was no argument between them. According to his mother, Marlene, she never got to speak to her son before he died. Warren had taken to avoiding her calls, probably to avoid any awkward conversations regarding his whereabouts and what he was doing. It's possible that one of his last phone conversations had been with his grandmother, as she had mentioned something about speaking to him, but it isn't known for sure, and this is pure speculation on Marlene's part. Marlene described her son as kind, compassionate, and intelligent, with a beautiful soul. He loved to laugh, he loved people, and he loved life. Warren was a prankster of note, and Marlene has many cherished memories of Warren, especially of his teasing his younger sister, Lee. How do I know all this? I was contacted by Warren's family. Marlene spoke to me over email and gave me a glimpse of the kind of person her son was, Lee got hold of me through Facebook and asked me to help her to get in touch with activist organizations to help bring awareness to Adam Voost's possible release. During our communications, Lee agreed to meet with me on Zoom to discuss her campaign to keep Adam Voost locked away. This is that conversation. Lee thank you so much for sitting down with me i really appreciate you taking the time um i want to start i uh, the, the podcast made out in late december late november early december how did you find out about us
2: um yeah i guess the, over the years it's been 18 years since the crime happened but south africa has never forgotten Um, And what I've come to realize over the years, as years pass, um, there are always um, articles, um, documentaries, shows, YouTube videos that come out um, about this crime. I think that South Africans in general have um, taken a particular interest in this uh, particular case just because of I guess first, firstly the the sheer gruesomeness that was involved, unfortunately, in this case, and then also um the mystery around the case. A lot of uh, people believe that there was some kind of conspiracy theory. they believe in like a different kind of motive. Um, and I guess it's partly because um Adam Buss and Trevor Trevors never spoke publicly about it. so because of that, um I've seen quite a bit of things being published over the years Um, and one thing that I always I guess it's it's just the bad habit um because we're so connected to the case I always go back um and check to see what's being said uh what people are saying about the case like what podcasts or videos or articles or documentaries are being released so that's how I um, stumbled across your documentary in January. Um, usually, January is a hard, hard month for me, a hard month for my family, hard month—I'm sure for all the families involved—because um, of Jan 20th. Um, so that's when I actually stumbled across your your podcast.
1: Okay, And uh, so you listened to the podcast itself.
2: Um, I started. It's okay. um, pretty well written and pretty graphic. Um, yeah. And I, I juggle sometimes mm-hmm. um, with those kinds of, um, um, I guess, pieces. Uh, but all the pieces are like that just because, um, you know, it's the case. And it, it's important, and this is going to sound awful, but it's important to remember um the level of detail. I think mostly because it's connected to Adam Vurst and what he did. And that's important, South Africa can't forget because pretty soon um, Adam Vust could be in our communities again. And it's it's important for people to to understand and know what he did.
1: Yeah. Okay, so let's uh, move, uh, go back in time a bit. And uh, um, you were very close with your brothers. That's correct, right? Um, anything to share about growing up with Warren and because yeah. basically we were, uh, I would like to show people that he he wasn't just the statistic so would you like is there anything you'd like to share
2: yeah um I think it's important to remember um the victims as people hmm. um, the victims Um, the 10 people that were affected within this crime have become known as the Sizzler's victims. And I want people to remember that they were people too. Mm -hmm. Just like you and me, they had goals, they had aspirations, they had lives, they had dreams. And that's important to remember. My brother, he was a computer engineer. He um, was going to study his master's um, and he was a fun-loving guy. He was sweet like very sweet of what I remember him he would always play bobbies and dolls with me I was the only girl in the family the youngest in the family um and he he kind of took me under his wing in a sense that he was really protective of me um I remember like there was one story that just or one incident that like sticks in my mind um, and it's just it's exactly who my brother was he was walking me to the shop so that I could spend my pocket money on sweets Um, and there were these two guys walking behind us telling dirty jokes and swearing and he turned around he looked at them and he was like excuse me can you not see that I'm walking with a young lady here and that was my brother like he was protective and he stood up for what was right he he was vocal about what was right and I miss that like that person was taken away from me um and yeah i mean we were all pretty close we'd play hide and seek together my brother was the oldest warren was the oldest i have another brother who's 10 months older than me and we used to play hide and seek together we used to yeah i mean <laughs> my brother warren always used to try and convince my um other brother to play Bobbies with me he would never uh, so Warren would always take that role to play Barbies with me and dress up. And yeah, uh, that that was my brother. He was comical. He was full of bad jokes, uh, funny faces. Like he, that was his shtick. Like he would pull funny faces and tell bad jokes. And when he'd tell a joke, people would be like, Oh my gosh, another Warren joke.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay. Um, now, not to the difficult side. Um. Walk me through the day that you heard you died.
2: Ugh. It's, well, it's hard to talk about. It. And still, after 18 years, it's it's a tough one. Um, it's also weird how it happened. Um, we, it was Sunday night. We were watching the 8 o'clock movie as a family, as we usually did every, every Sunday, watching the 8 o'clock movie on Mnet. Um. And I remember as a young girl going to bed thinking, oh my gosh, my life is perfect. That was my last thought before going to bed. The next memory I have is of my mom waking up and screaming to the top of her lungs. I guess what happened in the evening is we had a power failure. And usually when we had a power failure, the TV would go on blaring. Um, it just happened like whenever there was a power failure tv would automatically go on and my mom woke up to uh, put the tv off because it was loud um and that's when the news was on and my mom found out through the news i don't know how she knew she just like she started screaming and she's like oh my god warren's dead warren's dead and obviously me as a 14 year old girl i was like mom's you know like she's exaggerating like there's no like no, never, um, and then she called my stepfather home. She was like, Warren's dead. You need to come home, Warren's dead. And then my my stepfather came home and it, it was chaotic. I don't even remember like the sequence after that, but it was chaotic. My mom was calling around. My stepfather then decided to go to the mortaries and see if Warren was there. Um, he wasn't there, so my my father went back to work. Uh, My stepfather went back to work and then my mom just was so restless the whole day. And then just before lunch, she called him again. She was like, she found out that there were a few survivors in the hospital and she's like, you need to come back here. Warren's in the hospital. And then he went to the hospital and he saw my brother and uh, I'll never forget listening to the radio. I was hiding in my room I didn't I didn't go out to my mom at all, I don't think. Don't remember going out to my mom, but I remember hiding in my room with the radio on. And then they announced that um one of the survivors died, had just passed away in the hospital. And I remember like feeling, I don't know how I knew, but I was like, that's my brother. And I was so mad. I was so mad. Oh. And that was the day. It was a weird day. I'll never forget it. I'll never forget how my mom found out and what went on. It was probably it was the longest day of our lives. And it feels like it was yesterday. I'll never forget that day.
1: Okay. Um, that's... I'm very seldom at a loss for words, but I, I could, I can't even imagine what you, what, what you and your family must have gone through. Your family didn't attend the trial, but you and your mother did visit Trevor Tase in prison. What was it like for you to come face to va- face to face with one of the men who murdered your brother?
2: Okay, yeah. So Trevor Tase, it's I. Let me back up because I actually went as a 14-year-old girl uh, more because I was protective over my mom. I wanted to make sure that she was going to be okay. Um, So I had begged my mother to go with. She didn't want me to go with, but I told her that it was important for me to go with. um, So she let me go with. and I remember sitting there as a fourteen-year-old girl, and I bore so much hatred. Um, obviously, at fourteen, going tr- like going through the counselling, um, I still hadn't come come to terms with my feelings and being properly counselled. At to be honest, because I had just started, it was new in the counselling process. Um, so. I went with and I bore so much hatred towards him that he he showed quite a bit of remorse for what had happened he cried alongside my mom he answered all my mom's questions he it's weird to say but he almost like comforted her in that sense and It's hard to think of a murderer like this who committed these heinous crimes as being comforting, but he showed remorse, and I think that's what we needed. Um, We'll never come to terms with what he did. There's just absolutely no way. But seeing signs of remorse, as unbelievable as it sounds, helps a little bit.
1: Yeah. And... Your mom also went to go and see uh, uh, Adam Wust. You you didn't go with on that one, I I presume.
2: I didn't go with on that one. Um, I can't remember if that one was actually before Trevor Tase's visit, but my mom didn't get a lot out of that visit. Um, Mm. My mom left that visit coming back and saying, the devil lives in him. And it was because he didn't once look up at her, didn't once answer her questions. My mom was sobbing, sobbing, crying her eyes out, asking why, trying to get some kind of understanding as to why he tortured these 10 men, why he put them through this, why he killed them, the way he killed them. A lot of people don't actually know that this was a three to four hour process of the killings. They don't know the stages in which these murders accelerated and how they came to be about. But he was said to be the mastermind. And for me, I totally believe it. Like, I I definitely believe it, knowing what I know about him, knowing just more about his personality and how he didn't flinch when my mother cried, sobbing her eyes out, how he didn't look at her once, how he didn't answer a single question that she had. And knowing, hearing the descriptions of who Adam Wust was, knowing everybody speaks about his eyes as being black, emptiless pits, void of any kind of human life, any kind of humanity. And I keep going back to his quote of what he said to the court assigned psychiatrist that was evaluating him when she asked him if he had any remorse as to what he had done his only response was that he's remorseful that he won't be able to see Lord of the Rings 3 on the cinema and that to me tells you exactly what you need to know about Adam Burst it tells you that he is Um, completely detached emotionally from himself he lacks the basic human traits of an empathy which people need Um, and you know if you take a look at any of the huge serial killer cases they all have the same characteristics of lack of empathy being completely detached emotionally from themselves and that's that's who adam wust is and that is the person that is going to be released into the community again. That is the person that's going to live next to somebody in South Africa, it's a fact. It is a person who is going to be walking in somebody's community, living within a community where there are queer people. Um, And that to me is the scariest thing.
1: Wow, wow. Okay, so at the time, When they when they handed down the nine life sentences, and he he got they got they each got uh, nine life sentences plus a whole host of lesser lesser sentences. Um, How did your family feel at the time? Did they feel that um, justice had been served?
2: I think it's hard to ever feel like justice is served. Mm -hmm. I think it's so hard um, because they took nine loved ones away from us like precious souls in our families. They scarred another person so much that I'm sure he lives with this burden, the images, the flashbacks every single day. It's it's hard to think that justice can ever be served. However, going back to the nine life sentences, I have my own thoughts on that and I think The verbiage nine life sentences gives us a false sense of justice because we think 200 plus years, when in effect it's not 200 plus years. And many South Africans don't actually understand how life sentences are carried out. And that's an important message to get out there. Nine life sentences does not mean 200 plus years, it means at max for some cases. 25 years, and in Adam Wust's case, it means 12 years and four months just because he falls under the Fun Vake judgment. And I'm told that there are over a thousand cases that fall under the Van Vake judgment where these mass murderers, serial rapists, they become eligible for parole in as little as 12 years and four months. That, to me, is the biggest injustice and obviously we don't know that like nobody ever thinks about losing a family member in this way nobody ever thinks that they're going to be faced with this harsh reality of trying to understand what nine life sentences actually mean so i guess that that is the injustice that we're having to deal with already yeah. but now the further injustice that somebody like this could even be considered for parole is just so mind boggling. I mean, we've just seen the shootings in in Atlanta where six Asians were killed in a very similar circumstance, very similar. In Atlanta, they have the death penalty. They have the death penalty. You compare it to a country like South Africa where this guy is getting a slap on the wrist. By the time he leaves, he wouldn't have served three years per life he took. What kind of justice is that? Yeah. That's yeah. no justice. How, how do the families come to terms knowing, kept to terms with the fact knowing that their sons kill or only got three years for killing him? Mm-hmm. That's a harsh reality. It's yes. harsh to think about It's harsh to think about the, that my brother had to endure four hours of torture for three years.
1: It's crazy. It is crazy. It is totally crazy. Okay, let me jump in here quickly, because there are a couple of things that need to be clarified. Firstly, I want to discuss something called the Victim-Offender Dialogue, or VOD process. In the years following the fall of apartheid with the advent of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and such like, South Africa adopted an approach called Restorative Justice, Basically, according to a brochure published by the Department of Justice and Constitutional Development, as it was known at the time, this, quote, aims to involve the parties to a dispute and others affected by the harm the victims, offenders, families concerned, and community members in collectively identifying harms, needs, and obligations through accepting responsibilities, making restitution, and taking measures to prevent a recurrence of the incident and promoting reconciliation. Restorative justice sees crime as an act against the victim and shifts the focus to repairing the harm that has been committed against the victim and community. It believes that the offender also needs assistance and seeks to identify what needs change to prevent future reoffending. End quote. Well, that's the theory. The practice, however, seems a little different. Here's Lee again speaking to me later on in our conversation. After we'd actually wrapped up the interview and her husband Jonathan joined us on the call.
2: So, the VOD process is a a victim offender dialogue, which basically allows, which basically creates open communication between the victim and the uh, victims and the offender. Um, And the whole process, I got a PowerPoint uh, presentation from the caseworker explaining what this process was. And it was positioned as very much. uh, a, a process for the offender to come to terms with what he's done and to be able to forgive himself. And that to me I was Is so that, upset when I saw that because it sem- seemed like such a one-dimensional process yeah. and to take the the victims through that so that the offender can find of closure, yeah. some kind of closure yeah. was ridiculous.
1: I asked Lee to send me the PowerPoint presentation, and she is 100% correct. The process, in practice, is as different as chalk is to cheese from how the process is claimed to work in theory. If anything, it sounds more like the process is a way for the Department of Correctional Services, or DCS, to address the failures of the criminal justice system. The presentation starts off with a list of 15 what they call focus areas, the very first one is, and I'm reading directly from the presentation here, to, quote, reduce overcrowding and improve conditions of detention, end quote. In fact, not one of the 15 even mentions the victims and or their families. To be fair, victims are mentioned later on in the presentation, but it's almost like they're an afterthought. And then there is the thing on the second last slide of the presentation, the last slide just being a recap of the focus areas. But at the bottom of this slide, there are two little blocks, which read, Well done DCS, and successful execution of our mandate. Now, maybe I'm reading too much into this, but to me, it sounds like the VOD process is an opportunity for DCS to release dangerous criminals back onto the street to help ease overcrowding in the prisons, and still pat themselves on the back while they do it. Now, I'd be more than happy to have a representative from DCS on the show to set the record straight. But maybe, DCS, you want to look at fixing the wording in the presentation you're sending out. Because it seems like this presentation will be used for training purposes. And if this is the message you are sending to your officials, it is totally the wrong one. But let's move on to the other thing I want to discuss. And that's the judgment that Lee mentioned, the Funveik judgment. Now, this is actually one of two judgments that affect prisoners who committed offences prior to October 2004, the other being the Funfieden judgment. Very briefly, on October 1st, 2004, the minimum detention period for lifers, or offenders sentenced to life imprisonment, was changed from 20 years to 25 years, meaning that lifers needed to serve 25 years in prison before being considered eligible for parole. However, in the Funfieren case in 2010, the Constitutional Court ruled that, with a few exceptions, offenders who were sentenced to life before October 1st, 2004 could be considered for parole after serving 20 years. Then, in July 2011, the North Gautian High Court ruled that offenders who were serving sentences of life before October 1st, 2004 were entitled to quote, "...have the date on which they may be considered for parole advanced by credits earned in terms of Section 22A of the Correctional Services Act, subject to applicable criteria for the allocation of credits, and be considered for parole in terms of the policy of the department which applied at the date of the commission of the crimes for which they are serving life imprisonment. End quote. This means that the 30 years consideration date was brought forward by 6 years and 8 months. However, a subsequent court ruling in April 2016 added an additional six months to this period, meaning that if you were sentenced to life imprisonment, you could be considered to be let back on the street, as Lee mentioned, just 12 years and 4 months after you were put away for life. Now, we have a pretty short life expectancy in this country, but considering life as not even getting into the teens is absolute madness. But anyway, now that you have a better understanding of just how much of a custo- uh sorry, no swearing, just how much of an injustice this particular legal precedent is, let's get back to my conversation with Lee. You mentioned earlier that uh, about the conspiracies. Now, in my, in my in my final installment, I actually went into the conspiracy at length. Um, well, I suppose the, the first question is, do you think it holds water?
2: To be honest I don't think about it much and I I think that people naturally tend to go to conspiracy theories if they don't hear any kind of justification towards the crime. Mm -hmm. I mean it's hard to justify a crime as gruesome as this and I think added with that Trevor Tays and Adam Wust never offered any kind of justification, never said anything, never hinted towards why this was done. So naturally people start forming conspiracies or trying to find justification as to why this happened. And I know that there are two schools of thought out there. Well, actually three, because there's the conspiracy theories. There's the the first one, which is the robbery gone wrong. Uh, There is the second one of it was a hate crime. And then there's the third, which is a group of them of like conspiracy theories out there. I don't believe it was a robbery gone wrong. There is no way it was a robbery gone wrong. You don't take uh, two guns, bullets, knives, rope, duct tape and gasoline to a robbery. You just don't do that. That is a premeditated murder. It was a hate crime. Yeah. It was a hate crime. And I believe that with all my heart and South Africa seems to believe that too. The, mm. the, the notion of a robbery gone wrong just does not hold up. It does not. If these people, these men were targeted. And I believe that
1: you believe that there was a third man involved, a mastermind. I don't know. Don't,
2: okay. I, I don't know. It's hard. It's hard to actually know the true intentions, the true, you know, it's, you don't, you don't like, as I said earlier, there's no kinds of justification. There's no kind of like, well, I think it was this. I think it was that it's hard to justify something like this. I don't know if there was the third person involved. Some of the evidence that I've seen and read, I can see why people think that, but who carried out the crime, Trevor Tays and Adam Burst. We have them. Trevor Tays died. Uh, we have Adam Vost, and now there's a possibility of him being released. It's just such an absurdity.
1: It's very, very true. Yeah, so, now you, uh, you mentioned earlier you no longer live in South Africa, and in your open letter you say that you've, now, you've moved to Canada. Um, to uh, to get away from the memories? Has it helped? Has, has leaving South Africa helped?
2: No, it hasn't. Okay. It hasn't. It's actually made things so much harder because I want to be I want to live in South Africa. I love South Africa. I, it's, it's one of the most beautiful countries I've been to. I mean, obviously, you've been to because I've lived there. Um, but it's my home. I didn't want to leave my home to come to Canada, but I had to. I had to. I was being haunted every day in South Africa. I lived a very scared life in South Africa. My family lived a very scared life in South Africa. My mother was never the same. My mother was so scared of myself and my other brother, like so scared that something would happen to us. I had a nine o'clock curfew until I was 20. Like I had to call her if I decided to go out. I had to call her every hour to give her a sign that I was okay. I had to call her just before I was leaving a place and going home just so that she could time how long it took me to get home. So if something happened, she could alert the police. It tore her up with us being in South Africa. So when we decided to emigrate, my mother fully supported it. And she fully supported it because she wanted us to be safe. And that's hard for a mother to support her kids living in other countries, that distance between us. It, it's hard, I wanna be in South Africa. It's a beautiful country. My husband lived in South Africa for some time. He's Brazilian. And he loved it, but we can't. There's just too many demons in South Africa for me to be able to consider living there. And my brother, too. My brother immigrated away, too. And it was the same thing. He just couldn't. He he just couldn't think about the possibility of having kids in South Africa. He couldn't think about the possibility of living a life of imprisonment that my mother did with us. He just couldn't. So we left, but it hasn't helped, it definitely hasn't helped. Okay.
1: Let's move on to Adam Wurst and his, uh, his po- uh, possible early parole. How has hearing this news that he's possibly going to be out on the streets soon, how has that affected you?
2: A lot. A lot and the other families it's affected all of us a lot it just it it's a gut punch it's such a gut punch because essentially his consideration for parole tells us or sends the message that these lives did not matter it sends that message and the spokesperson of the correctional services talks about rights a lot talks about the rights of the prisoners, which I get, totally get, but you can have rights maintaining that person in prison for him, allowing him to serve his sentence correctly and justly and fairly. Yes. So it's been such a gut punch to think about his release and hearing the spokesperson talking about human rights of the prisoners when they haven't even considered the human rights of our family members, the human rights of Quentin Taylor, like they should be considering his rights over a prisoner. Mm. And yes. I feel like they haven't and I can't even imagine to start even thinking about how Quentin feels in all of this. Mm.
1: You, I want to get back to your, this petition that you put, that you put out on change.org, which will be linked to in the show notes. Um, apart from sharing the hell out of it, how can the queer community, because let's face it, this, this affected us. I wouldn't say as much, but almost as much. We didn't lose a brother, but we did lose a part of us. Um, yeah. How, uh, how can the queer community come, uh, come, to, uh, come to your aid in uh, uh, preventing this man from getting out into the street?
2: Well, I think it's important that they share. Speak up. Speak up. I don't think that we have a culture of speaking up in South Africa. Um, the queer community does, which is so important. It's important for a number of reasons but it's so imperative for change, for people to speak up. If you want change, you have to be the change. You have to be the voice. So I I encourage the community to keep sharing, keep speaking about this, present cases of injustice. It isn't such an injustice. This was a hate crime. And I believe that to my core, it was a hate crime. So speak up. Share on social media. I started this not even a week ago on social media and it's gone completely viral because people see the injustice in this. Share on social media, share the petition, tag in celebrities and influencers and policymakers and the president and the minister of justice, tag them in because so far, I haven't had a response from them at all. I've had influences and celebrities taking a stand and sharing this on their platforms, which is so incredible and means so much to me and the families. It means a lot because they see the injustice, but nobody from the South African government has even made a comment or reached out or said anything. And to me... That is such an injustice. You need to hear the people of South Africa's voices. You have to. You cannot just turn a blind eye and pretend that it's not happening.
1: That is shocking.
2: I, I just, I ask for myself, my brother, our family members, all the families involved for Quentin, keep sharing, keep speaking about this, present your cases of injustice and tag in policymakers. <sighs>
1: Okay. You've, you're not only limiting this to South Africa, obviously, are uh, you, like you say, you stay, stay in North America. So you, and you did mention that you are pretty much going on a massive media blitz, both here in South Africa and over there. Um, how big, how big are you going?
2: As big as I can. My intention is put, to put South Africa in the spotlight South Africa needs to be in the spotlight. They need to change. And I believe that we need bigger voices involved. We need a network of um, community members across the world coming together and shining a spotlight on South Africa Mm. so that we can get change. The government doesn't listen to us, but I'm hoping, I'm hoping by putting South Africa in the spotlight, somehow policymakers and the government feel embarrassed, feel embarrassed about the superficial laws that they put in place to give the families a full sense of justice. That's what I'm hoping. I've started in South Africa. It's been less than a week. It's been a lot of work. The outreach has been incredible. The media intention has been incredible. Incredible. Um, everybody's interested in telling the story. So my next step really is to make sure that we really focus on driving international attention to this, getting their attention. Not all of the victims um, were South African. So I I want to make sure that we tell that story. It's important. Um, South Africa has been in the news a lot um, and not for good reasons. And this is going to be another this is going to be another one. Yeah.
1: That's, that brings me to my next point is, how has the interest been by the, from the international community um, on the parole procedure of a man that killed nine other men 18 years ago? How, how, what has the reaction been like?
2: The reaction has taken me by surprise, to be honest. Um, When I launched this um, six days ago, I didn't expect it to move so fast. Mm -hmm. I didn't expect it to go viral on social media um, and quickly get the attention that it deserved. Um, I've had a lot of people from the media reaching out to me in all forms, finding me on Facebook, finding me on Instagram, um, finding me through my petition um, and just logging a note on, on the comments section. Um, and I crazy enough, some have even found me on LinkedIn. Um, so the interest has been overwhelming. There's I've, I've had to take the week off of work to, to be able to, to manage all the interviews, um, all the requests for, for comments, um, and it's been overwhelming like people strangers have been sharing openly and widely on social media people that I went to primary school with that I haven't spoken to in years have found this Um, the families have found me through the petition which I'm so grateful for because um, the South African Correctional Services have had Huge problems trying to locate the families, um, so which means that they wouldn't even know that Adam Wurst is even up for consideration for parole. And a lot of them, for the first time, found out through the petition. Wow. Yeah, it's it's a tough pill to swallow.
1: Okay, this is going to sound maybe a little harsh, um, but why should people care? Why should people care that this guy's getting out on parole?
2: Yeah, I think it's a really, really important question to ask, because nobody's going to care as much as I do, or the family members or those directly impacted. And this is something that my husband reminded me of, because I'm quite an emotional being. Um, So he was like, Lee, I just want to set your expectations, people aren't going to care as much as you do, Uh, or the families or those people directly affected by this. So just manage your expectations. But people absolutely should care, especially South Africans um, where he is going to be somebody's neighbor. He could potentially be somebody's friend unaware of what he's done. He is going to be living in the community. He's going to be living in communities where there are queer people, you know? And that to me is such a scary thought. I don't live in South Africa, but yes. I, as I mentioned, I have friends and family that still do. And that to me is so scary. Mm. So they should care for that reason, but also the queer community. This was a hate crime. They should be up in arms about this because it sends the wrong message to the community if he gets released. The absolute wrong message.
1: That is so true. That is absolutely so true. Okay, um, I want to turn to the other people uh, that, that were left behind, and in particular, Quentin Taylor. I see that he also uh, he also signed your petition, and he's in his comments he said he's quote disgusted at learning of this, meaning the uh, early parole that that is being considered. Have you been in touch with Quinton?
2: i reached out to him. I'm very sensitive to Quentin's position um and mainly because he still bears the physical and emotional scars of this event and he's had to live with the burden of knowing exactly what happened that night knowing how his friends and colleagues had fled for their life and cried and prayed next to him it's it's hard, so I'm very sensitive to his fact or his, his situation that he's dealing with. And I, I just have this overwhelming sense of gratitude for what he's done for us, for our families, because without him, we'd be left with so many more questions and answers. answers. There'd be so many more conspiracy theories haunting us at night. He was able to identify the people that did this and he lives with that. And for me, I'm scared for South Africa, but I'm mostly scared for Quentin. I'm mostly scared for Quentin because how do you live in a country that has put a higher value on the rights of the prisoner that did these heinous crimes to him than him? And he really is, in my opinion, the unsung hero in this case been my hero I've kept tabs on him over the years without him knowing obviously and it's only recently that I've had the courage to reach out to him and just try to let him know that he's supported and we're grateful for what he's done and he he didn't have to bear his scars in vain that he's done this for a reason and I just commend his bravery He's incredibly brave for reliving and recanting the story of horror.
1: Okay. Let's move on to something a little less traumatic, if I put it that way. The, the men that lost their lives that night or as a result of the massacre, um, they have become remembered simply as victims. Uh, in fact, Sergio de Castro, a friend of his, actually said it's sad that he, uh, that he will only be remembered as a victim in the years to come. And that's pretty much what's happened. Nobody remembers Warren's mischievous prankster, prankster uh, ways or Sergio's amazing singing voice. Um, how would you like the world to remember... Umena died, but in particular, your brother.
2: Yeah, like I said before, these are all men with aspirations, dreams, fun personalities. They could have been your friend, my friend. They could have been a part of your family, you know, somebody uh, with within your community. Um, and that's what I want people to remember. It's, it's hard because I've seen that these victims have become exactly that. They are referred to as victims. People barely remember their names anymore and they barely remember their faces anymore, which is why I've started using my brother's image, using the little photos that I have to remind everybody that this, this victim had a face. He had a name. He had a personality, he had dreams, he had aspirations. My brother, as I said, was mischievous, playful. He told really bad jokes. <laughs> and he pulled such weird faces uh, to try and like be comical. And I love that. And Adam us took these men away from us. Like this, this is just my brother's personality, but all of them had fun traits and characteristics and they were great people you know and they were taken in such a heinous way by a man that is huge he's giant he's such a big man and he his expressions and his eyes are just completely dead he he haunts my dreams and in my petition i I talk of him as the monster because For so many years, he was the monster that haunted me, that haunted me in my dreams and just became this fictional boogeyman in my head, which was when I was younger Till later on when I really started understanding more about this crime and learning more about this crime has become a real monster to me.
1: Okay. Before we go... I just want to get back to your petition, Um, and I want to talk about how effective you think it'll be. What's going to happen with those signatures? Uh, Will the parole board actually get to see them?
2: So, yeah, the parole board will get to see them. I'm allowed to use my petition in the case files. Mm -hmm. Um, So as part of this whole process, um, the family members are able to put together letters of appeal, Um, This was initially the petition wasn't going to be a petition. It was actually my letter of appeal um, that I had wrote to the parole board, but had decided to post publicly because I don't believe behind closed doors justice is going to be served. I believe that this needs to be made public. People need to know what's happening because we need South Africans to rally behind this injustice because it doesn't only affect the Sizzlers case, but it affects so many other cases. And we need to use the Sizzlers case as a case study to create justice, as a case study to get our politicians to review uh, the laws of life sentences. It it has to be used in that manner. So I, I decided to turn my letter of appeal to the parole board into a public letter of appeal to the president and the minister of justice and um, publish that publicly so that people could have their say. So this letter, this petition is going to be included within the case files, which is why I'm, I'm driving it as far as I can. I'm driving it to all the South Africans internationally that left South Africa for the same reasons I did. Um, I'm driving it to the people within South Africa that will eventually have to live alongside this person within their communities. Um, so that is my intention to, to use it with, within the case files, yes.
1: Okay. Um, thank you very much for your time. I really do appreciate this.
2: Thank you. I I appreciate you telling the story because the story needs to be told no matter how hard it is. We we have to use our voices and protest. What I, what I've noticed in my travels is that South Africans don't protest enough and we need we need to speak up for what is right. We have to we have to use our voices and rise above to be able to stand up for those people being oppressed. <laughs> The community is being oppressed for justice where justice is not being served, so.
1: People don't protest in South Africa. We are so apathetic here. And we would, ne- we would never, ever, ever have a, a protest on the scale of the Black Lives Matter protest here. We just won't, won't, won't have it, people, people
2: are. And we should, if we want South Africa to change, we talk about change so much. If we want South Africa to change, We have to speak up. Mm. We have to. And so many people see people that leave South Africa as cowards, Mm. you know, but we're not cowards. We're wanting to change our circumstance and our situation and, Hmm. leaving south africa was the hardest thing one of the hardest things because this is the hardest thing i've ever done but one of the hardest things i've done i want so badly to live in south africa but i could never start a family in south africa i could never so i have to think about what's more important to me and i want to i want to be a mom one day i want to have a child named warren like like that's what i want and I want South Africans to stand up for what is right. It's important, it's important. The only way we're going to evoke any kind of change is if we come together, rally together, band together and fight for what is right. If you see any kind of injustice, not only if injustice affects you, like it's affected me, stand up for your neighbor, stand up for the communities around you because we're not going to change South Africa in one voice. Not gonna happen. Yeah. We have to change South Africa and use our voices collectively to be able to get politicians to take note. We have to fight the big men on top. And it's the little guys at the bottom that are going to make the difference. I get it, I get it. South Africans were oppressed for so long. I get I get it. Like communities we're so oppressed for so long and we have a history of oppression and people not wanting to speak up because of fear of their lives. Yeah. But now's the time to do that. Now we have a, a a society that they don't always listen, but we can use our voices freely. And we have to, we have to be able to drive change. If, if not for yourself or your neighbor, do it for the generations that lie ahead of you. Do it for your children. Yeah. It's, important that um, South Africans realize that they have voices, and now's the time to use it. Now's mm. the time to rise and speak up.
1: Yeah yes
2: oh.
1: I cannot begin to imagine what you what you have gone through these past 18 years and how ruthlessly the wounds have been ripped open for you um,
0: but thank you
2: course, I really appreciate you telling our story. I appreciate everybody for sharing and the continued sharing and the continued support. It just lets me know that I'm fighting for something. My biggest fear, my biggest fear that keeps me up at night over these last two weeks is that I'm going through all of this and our families are going through all of this. And yet justice might not be served because even though we're going through this doesn't mean that the parole board is going to notice. It doesn't mean that they're gonna take it into consideration. So that's my biggest fear. And I just thank you so much for doing this.
1: I spent over ninety minutes chatting to Lee on Friday evening. And one of my takeaways from the conversation was that she's an extremely strong woman who is committed to taking a stand for what she believes in. Not only for her brother, but for every victim and every person impacted by violent crime in this country. I hadn't actually done the maths until I got to this exact point in writing the script, but when I did, it came as a bit of a surprise to learn that, with Adam Bus being only twenty eight years old at the time of his incarceration. He is my age now, 44, maybe a year older. I'd like to think that I still have a good few years ahead of me, and if I do, so could he. That is a sobering thought. How long before he's your neighbor, interacting with your kids, your family, waiting for that moment where opportunity and his psychopathy come into perfect alignment once more? Can a man like him, a man whose main concern after killing nine men, was that he would miss catching the third Lord of the Rings film on the big screen? Can a man like that actually be rehabilitated? He is still young enough to be able to reboot his life, get married, have kids, assimilate into respectable society, as if he bears no responsibility for the deaths of Warren Fisser, Timothy Boyd, Sergio De Castro, Farney Faschier, Johann Mayer, Marius Mayer, Travis Reed, Gregory Burghaus, and Aubrey Othgar, and the permanent disability of Quentin Taylor not to mention the pain, trauma, and suffering of the countless people, like Lee and Marlene, who knew and loved the men who were lost at his hand. (sighs) You know, I've struggled to settle on the message that I wanted to convey with this episode. To be honest, the message I would probably want to convey if I wasn't trying to rein myself in may not be that helpful to the cause. I would want to shame the Department of Justice for abandoning the rights of the victims and their friends and families, in favour of the rights of convicted criminals. Shame on them for putting those who disregarded the laws of this country ahead of those who are left in the wake of their path of lawless destruction. I would want to shame those people who would be affected by Adam Voss being granted parole, but don't want to appeal the process because they are still ashamed of what the men who died were doing for a living. Shame on them for seeing their loved ones as nothing more than their profession. I would want to shame South Africans for their apathy towards standing up for their rights and the rights of their fellow citizens. Shame on them for their reluctance to come out in their numbers and take to the streets and protest, and even more shame on them for not taking five minutes out of their day to browse to change.org and sign the petition. All of these are perfectly good reasons to dish out the shame. But I'm not entirely convinced that shame is a strong enough emotion here. I'm not sure that shame alone would elicit the kind of response that the situation needs. Anger would, though. Yes, anger is definitely the emotion to embrace right now, and damn right you should be angry. Angry that despite nine life sentences for murder, 20 years for attempted murder, 15 years for robbery, 3 years for the unlawful possession of a firearm, and 2 years for the unlawful possession of ammunition, a collective consecutive sentence of 265 years, Adam Wüst will get out in less than a tenth of that, even if Lee's campaign is successful. Angry that, by considering this man for early parole, our justice system is giving our community, the queer community, the finger. They are sending the message that, despite our progressive constitution, despite Adam Bush committing the worst mass murder carried out against the South African queer community in this country's history, despite getting sentenced to life imprisonment nine times over for each of the lives that he took, it's okay to welcome this monster back onto the street, where he can become just another face in the crowd, where only his cold, dead eyes give away any sort of hint that this man could easily do it all again. After all, as Marlene said in her open letter to Adam Wust posted in the comments of Lee's petition, men like him don't change. And let's not forget that she sat down with him face to face, she got to face the monster in person. And then there's this.
2: My biggest fear, my biggest fear that keeps me up at night over these last two weeks is that I'm going through all of this and our families are going through all of this and yet justice might not be served because even though we're going through this doesn't mean that the parole board is going to notice. It doesn't mean that they're going to take it into consideration.
1: If nothing else, that right there should be your motivation to make sure the parole board does take notice. Sign the petition. There are links in the show notes. It's pinned as an announcement on our Facebook group, and it's also the pinned tweet on our Twitter feed. Then, if you haven't already, join our Facebook group and watch out for announcements of protests being planned around the country to draw attention to this miscarriage of justice. This is a travesty piled on top of a tragedy, and doing nothing to push back against this will send a message to our Department of Justice that the justice system, in its current form, isn't fucked. When what we are rallying against here proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that it is. It truly, absolutely is. That's all I have for you this time, but I want to thank you for joining me for my conversation with Lee Fisser, And thank you again to Lee and Jonathan for taking the time to chat with me. I'll be back again next time with the final part of our series on gay panic in South Africa, where we'll be discussing the murder of Sudaduzu Butlezi and the shocking court proceedings that followed, which definitely earned this case its label of a crime
0: most queer. been listening to a crime most queer an lgbtq true crime podcast based in johannesburg south africa presented by va amazing and written and produced by nj hawkeby and janine McLean, with editorial oversight by richard thompson original music by joseph mcdade and additional voice talent by janine mcclain and others see our show notes for more info Cry Most Queer is available on most podcasting platforms, including Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and others. Remember to subscribe on your podcast app of choice to be notified when we release new episodes. And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, be sure to give us a rating and leave us a review. We really do appreciate hearing from you. If you'd like to support the show, you can become a patron from just $1 per month by going to patreon.com forward slash ACMQ podcast or make a one-off donation at paypal.me forward slash ACMQ We post all episodes along with additional content to our website www.acmq.co.za You can find us on social media by searching for A Crime Most Queer on Facebook and Twitter. We also welcome your thoughts either on social media or you can email us at comment While this story is based on actual events, Some situations, conversations and characterizations may have been fictionalized or invented for purposes of dramatization, based on court documents and press reports from the time. With respect to such fictionalizations, any familiarity to actual character or history of any person, living or dead, is purely for dramatic purposes. Some names may have been changed to protect the identity of those involved.